All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush, author of the book on product-led growth. And today I have Zach Sims, who is the CEO of Code Academy. So I've been following Code Academy's journey for a while now, and it's been nothing short of incredible. Just the number of people you have learning at Code Academy. It is fantastic. And so one of the things that we were just talking about this too, that has been a core component of Code Academy's growth strategy is really the freemium model. It's incredible. They have given away so much free courses around just how to learn how to code and is absolutely fantastic. So we're going to go deep behind the scenes of how they did it, what are some of the mistakes they made along the way, and ultimately leave you with some of the great strategies you can apply to your own business. So Zach, it is an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Wes, thank you so much for having me. No worries. And I know most people would start asking the question around, you know, what is your background behind Code Academy? But before we kind of gig into that part, I want to just hear, like, what is your overall vision for Code Academy? Like, where do you see Code Academy in the next even five or 10 years and where you're headed? Yeah, so at Code Academy, our mission is to connect millions of people to economic opportunity through technologies. So I think for us, that's everything from inspiring them to start learning technology skills to actually practicing and learning those technology skills with Code Academy to eventually kind of helping them over the arc of their career, whether that's placing them in jobs eventually, helping them upskill while they're on the job with a product like Code Academy for Business that we have today. You know, what excites me in the morning is when I get to wake up and realize that there are tens of millions of people in the world that are living better lives because of what we build. And they're using those skills to start businesses, get better jobs, and feed their families. Awesome. And now I know this part of the story, but for the audience, can you just share like a little bit about how you got started with Code Academy? Yeah, absolutely. So I was an undergrad at Columbia in 2011. I'd worked for a couple of startups in New York, a company called Dropio that got sold to Facebook and a company called GroupMe that got sold to Skype. And kind of what I kept realizing on those jobs was we were trying as hard as we could to hire software engineers, designers, product managers, and it was impossible. And yet somehow when I went back to Columbia to try taking courses that would be at all relevant to any of those skills, the concept of like a career-oriented education was strongly discouraged. And so I took my first introduction to computer science class, super theoretical. And and the professor, you know, basically said, you're all going to fail and you're going to work 40 hours a week. So it's not particularly inspiring. So my co-founder and I, you know, realized, wait a second, what I'm going through something that so many other people were going through as well, which is at the time, 50% of US college students were unemployed or underemployed a year after they graduated from college. So massive student debt crisis, no ability for people to learn these skills that are important. And we also realized, as Mark Andreessen said later that summer, software is eating the world. And the most important skill for people around the world to learn would be software. And so the two of us started kind of hacking on ideas in my dorm room around like, what can we do to give people access to programming, the most important skill of the 21st century, and really help them, again, access that economic opportunity that college wasn't providing, that most higher education wasn't providing at that time. And we really built the first version of the company for me. So I was a non-engineer trying to learn more engineering skills. And so V1 of the product basically taught me JavaScript. And it just turns out there's like a few other people out there like me. Just a few, of course. And on your website right now, it's like 50 million plus learners. There's a ton. (laughs) Hopefully they're all smarter than me. But yes, there's a few people. Yeah, no, what I find funny about that is like, I can totally relate. Like I was in university and like, I remember taking one of the first like marketing courses and I was like, 
my goodness. Like we're getting like quizzed on like, what is CPC, like cost per click? I'm like, why don't we actually learn how to like do that stuff and like just set up an AdWords account or something? Like all this stuff is free anyways. <laughs> why not learn by doing? So I really like that mission too that you're pushing at Code Academy, which is just like learn by doing because I honestly think that's one of the easiest ways that you can pick things up because it's one thing to just hear about it and like learn the term, but actually doing it and applying it is a whole nother level of learning that actually is sticky. And I love that stuff. So as far as V1 goes, like what did that look like for Code Academy? It was for you. Yes. So it was JavaScript, but like, what did it look like? Yeah. So, I mean, we built the first version of Code Academy with one JavaScript lesson and the two of us worked together on building basically an interactive development environment in the browser that just at the time just ran JavaScript and we wanted to give people the opportunity to kind of get their feet wet. And so the page at the time, the homepage had the terminal on it, basically allowed anybody, uh, it asked you what your name was. So it started really simply, you know, I think at the time it said, hey, my name is Zach, you know, what's your name? You'd enter your name, we'd ask you for your age and a couple other details. And then we kind of have you write code around those facts. So now store your name as a variable, multiply your age by two, et cetera, just to kind of introduce people really loosely to this idea of what they could do with programming. And I think kind of starting with a get your feet wet, really low friction experience, you know, we didn't ask for sign up. You know, there was nothing behind like an email registration form. And we just kind of let people dive right into the product. And I think that was like a massive differentiator for us early on when we launched. Interesting. So you start with that simple V1 where you can dive right in, start learning JavaScript. And now you're at this whole nother scale. Like, can you take us through maybe like a couple of the different versions that got you to where you are right now and how the product evolves? And so right from that first experience with the JavaScript, what was kind of the next step? Like you found something that worked. I believe in one of the interviews you had like launched, you got like, I think over a hundred thousand people using it pretty quickly. And then you found something that works. And then what was next as far as like the evolution of Code so, so you're right. I mean, we launched that first version of the site and there was just one course in the site. And so we had this really challenging user behavior where, you know, someone would sign up to Code Academy, they'd take their first course, they'd love it. And then... As soon as they finished first course, nothing else. Like So the product had a pretty capped use case, which I think was pretty concerning early on. There was no way for people to use it again and again and again. And so if you looked at our usage stats at the time, we were like, oh my goodness, we have to raise venture capital money like right now because no one's ever going to come back to use this because there's nothing else to do. And so I think what we did was focus as quickly as possible then on once we realized that we had a product that people liked. We tried to create as much content as we could as fast as possible. And those early days of the business, I mean, we, you know, I was 21, my co-founder Ryan was 22. We had no idea what we were doing. And realistically, I think we very quickly kind of started scampering to hire at the same time as we were running to create more courses at the same time as we were trying to build more features. And it just felt like endless hamster wheel. I mean, at one point, the two of us realized, you know, we're interviewing people during the day from like, you know, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then we just write code from like 4 p.m. to 2 a.m. and then sleep and then rinse and repeat and do it all over again. There were just two people trying to build this business. And I think we made a lot of mistakes early on as, as a result of that. But the biggest thing you mentioned, obviously, taking you through some of the evolution for us going from one course that just taught you JavaScript to very quickly, we shifted towards 
We launched a program that the end of 2011 called Code Year that tried to make 2012 the year that everyone around the world learned to program. And we had people like Mike Bloomberg promote that. And one of the kind of real big things that came out of that program was basically a commitment to our learners to ship new curriculum every Sunday night because we told them that we were going to send them an email every week that would help get them closer to learning programming. And that gave us an internal deadline and accountability to create as much content as possible. And it made it easy for them to know when to come back. So I think we went from like one course to immediately like a roadmap for our learners to get lots and lots of new courseware as fast as possible early on. Interesting. So it sounds like there was a ton of content yeah. <laughs> initially. Yep. And there wasn't too much rhyme or reason around like how you kind of like structured or how you launched yours, just like trying to find out what worked or did you eventually find more of a pattern as far as like, okay, what is the best way for us to do this? Can you take us through like, okay, from that first version to launching a bunch of this content to finally finding kind of a rhythm or maybe even more of a strategy, let's call it, around how do you prioritize and find out like, what is the content that we need to be creating? Yeah, so I should be clear for us, I think content during that period was curriculum. So like courses. For us, I think the roadmap was reasonably clear. We basically told people that over the course of you know, 52 weeks, we will send you enough content to turn you into a full stack software developer. And so the type of content content we needed to create was basically dictated by employers at that point, right? What are people interested in learning and what will help them get a job? And so I think it's a lot less of kind of, you know, when marketers, I think, think of traditional content, it's blog posts and podcasts and events. And I think for us, it was just courses. And so we kind of knew what course we needed to create because we were speaking to employers all the time. And at the same time, we were also surveying our learners. You know, what are you interested in learning? What courses will help get you closer to a job? And so I think we took that roadmap of like, what do we need to teach over 52 weeks and then turn that into our curriculum roadmap, which we use to create lots of content. I think over that period of time, there are also a whole bunch of features we launched in that first year. You know, we launched the ability for anyone to create courses on Codecademy. We launched in a couple of different countries. And importantly, we added a whole slew of different programming languages. So things like Python, things like Ruby, and we're basically building a development environment in the browser. So launching each of those languages was a pretty big investment of engineering as well. Definitely. And so as you were launching like that 52 weeks of content, was that all like 100% free content for that year? Yeah. So all that content was 100% free. And I think that's one of those things that initially like really helped to build the brand is, you know, we were really concerned early on that, you know, we've been actively discouraged from pursuing the idea for Code Academy because many people had kind of told us, look, not everyone needs to learn to program. There might not be a market for this. And so a lot of our effort was really in kind of evangelism and activism and getting people to believe that everybody needed to learn to program. And so by making things free, we thought we could maybe attract people who might not otherwise be interested in learning to program. And that's why that code year launch was, look, technology is clearly important to the future. It's clearly something lots and lots of people need to learn. Why not make it your New Year's resolution? So kind of attached to this mainstream event. And then you want to deliver as much content around that as possible. And I think that's kind of what resulted in a lot of those quote-unquote celebrity endorsements at the time. You know, As I mentioned, Mike Bloomberg signed up to do it. There were a lot of other journalists as well that kind of wrote about their experiences, whether it was in Slate or in the New York Times or Forbes or other publications. And I think that really helped kind of mainstream this idea. And that actually also led to, we started to do a lot of government work around this time. So we worked at the White House on a program at the time called Summer Jobs Plus, 
where high school students could learn to program for free using Codecademy and then end up getting summer jobs. So I think by being free, we were really trying to kind of mainstream this idea of programming as a skill that many, many people needed to learn. The same way, I think if you look at Google and Apple and a lot of the bigger tech companies today, they make a lot of their services available for free or reduced cost when they're trying to build markets, which is what they do in education or in nonprofits as well. Yeah, no, and that's super interesting from a strategy perspective too, because what you're really doing, whether you realized it or not, was you're growing the total addressable market. And because it's more accessible to so many people who had never even considered this and they have an easy way to start. So I think it's really, really a smart play, especially at the early stages too, to build that brands, build that reputation around like, if you want to learn how to code and we actually stand behind like our core belief that anyone can learn how to code, it falls very nicely within that. And I'm curious to hear even beyond that, like what role did free courses play in Code Academy's overall growth story? I think it's very much what you just mentioned, kind of from a TAM growth perspective. I think early on, we thought like, this is the key to growth, is first kind of mainstreaming this idea. And then as we started to introduce a paywall and a paid product, and we launched Code Academy Pro in kind of mid-2016, free courses are still kind of the backbone of what drives Code Academy's growth. So we make a lot of our courses available for free. If people like and enjoy those courses, generally they pay an upgrade for Codecademy Pro. And I think that's kind of the largest source of new uh, subscribers to Codecademy Pro today. So I think on the one hand, it's really, really good from a brand awareness perspective. Definitely, I think that's one of those things that's getting lots of folks to use Codecademy. And then also it's really a meaningful business driver as well. Okay. And just to give the audience some perspective of the time that it took for you to kind of like put up that pay gate, when did Code Academy start? Yeah, we started in 2011 and we launched the paywall, started testing the paywall probably mid-2015 and launched okay. paywall 2016. Wow. So yeah, like four or five years on that. And for like those first four years, like, can you give us some idea of like what the growth looked like? Maybe from like the first year to the second year to the third year to the fourth year in just like user numbers as well. Because sometimes it does take a while for users to learn about a free product and start sharing it with people before you start getting like those crazy numbers. I'm curious if that was the case as well. I think we were pretty lucky kind of early on. We first launched, we posted the, our launch to Hacker News as a show HN. And, you know, we had more than 200,000 people use the site in the first three days. And I think that kind of told us we were onto something. But then, like we talked about, kind of we saw this huge spike and then a dip. And then Code Year happened. It was another big spike. And then I think with that kind of 52 weeks of engagement for our learners, every Sunday, when we sent that email out to hundreds of thousands of people, we'd see a huge spike. We kind of had some referral incentives for people to encourage their friends to sign up and learn with us as well. So... I think we kind of worked on growth mechanics that first year, you know, that helped the business kind of grow somewhat steadily over time. And I think the biggest challenge, honestly, was the metrics we focused on those first before generating revenue. Yeah, we're like signups, you know, monthly active users, et cetera. And I think the challenge for a product like ours that was didn't have a revenue model is number one. And number two, I think we have a really large TAM, but realistically, like it's not the same as from a number of potential users' perspective. It's not Snapchat. It's not Twitter. You know, not every person in the world is going to use Codecademy. So I think kind of the fact that we remained free for so long, in retrospect, maybe like was a bit of a challenge because I think we might have reached critical mass two or three years earlier than we started charging. I mean, the incremental benefit of remaining free for that long might have been somewhat questionable. 
Interesting. All right. So I want to dig into that questionable part <laughs> because I, honestly, like well, the first time I heard your story, I was like, you waited that long. It was pretty impressive. Like as far as like being free for uh, that amount of time, I know like with you took venture capital. So I mean, like you definitely had a lot of trust from those people <laughs> to go free for that long. And honestly, it's incredible. I mean, either way you're making it work, but what was the questionable part? as far of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think in retrospect, we could have monetized sooner. And I think we spent a lot of time unclear about what metrics to optimize for. And I think from a venture perspective now, maybe this is a little bit lost. Although these companies do exist again now, if you look at Clubhouse or IRL or companies like that that are kind of newer social businesses. When we first started the company, this was the heyday of like Twitter and Foursquare and Tumblr and all these companies that grew large quickly. Duolingo, and at the time, didn't have revenue models. And a lot of us had shared investor, Union Square Ventures, who kind of knew their thesis at the time, build large networks of engaged users and kind of monetize later. And I think for us, that was the plan. And I think we just never knew what later meant. And I think, you know, we looked at kind of a continuously escalating set of metrics on the free side. And it was easy and intoxicating, I think, to look at those metrics and think you were doing well. And I think we were doing well. Like We built a product that tens of millions of people around the world loved. And I think we kind of always knew how we wanted to monetize. It was just unclear when exactly the right time was. To your question, I posted a tweet storm recently. We announced around a financing that kicked off some degree of controversy where a lot of people responded like, well, of course you have to make money. Like, how did you not realize that? Or how easy is it to get people to use something for free? You kind of embedded this in your question. It's not easy to get tens of millions of people to use something for free. And we spent a lot of time doing that. And so I think like the market was maybe rewarding us for clearly building something that like people wanted to use again and again and again. And that's why we were able to raise venture capital financing. And we also kind of were able to draw like a through line from here's where we are today. And when we monetize, here's how we'll monetize. And here's what the economics look like. And I think that's what people found attractive at the time. Definitely. And you kind of alluded to this, to this question, but when do you think is the right time to monetize? Great question. I mean, I think it really is dependent on the business you're running. I think if there's a network effect or if there are like meaningful incremental benefits to reaching a certain point of scale you can wait. I think for us, honestly, I would have done so significantly earlier. Like It's unclear to me in retrospect, the benefit, the differential benefit between us having a million users when we started monetizing or 10 million users when we started monetizing. Obviously, it's easier to like try to push more people through a funnel when you have more of them. But I think there's a lot of benefit to the rigor that you have when you are a revenue-driven business. Like I think for us, things just dramatically change. Like there's a one number on the scoreboard at the end of the day, and you're building a business that you know if it's working or not, if you're making more money you know, next month than you did this month. And if you're not doing that, then like you have a problem. And I think prior to that, there were a lot of things that we focused on. You know, do we have enough monthly active users? Do we have enough signups? How do we measure whether or not people are learning? And those all become like, those are secondary metrics and we still look at a lot of them today, but it became much easier to say like, are we doing well in a world where revenue is kind of that number one metric? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I buy that too. It's totally different for every single business as far as how you would think about monetization. When is the best time for you? Because like you mentioned with the clubhouse, even Twitter or Facebook example, it's like for a product like that, that might make its money on advertising. It's like, you should get the biggest total addressable market to make that model work for you. Absolutely. And like, as far as 
your moat that you're building for Code Academy. Could you just kind of describe like what that looks like for your business and how you're planning on doubling down on that particular moat? Yeah, so I think kind of a, a lot of different modes for this business. You know, one of the biggest, which I originally was kind of loath to believe in is a brand mode. I think, you know, at the end of the day, like many people believe that Code Academy is the best place to start learning. And at the same time, that brand mode kind of continues with employers. So people hire Code Academy graduates, those Code Academy graduates become hiring managers. They're then looking for people that have Code Academy learning experience as well. And so I think we fortunately are seeing a lot of that style behavior, which is a very, very difficult mode to replicate because of the scale of the product. So that's number one. Number two, I look at the community that we've built as a really, really important attribute of what we do. That's really great forums, really great questions and answers. And those are things that exploit the scale and size of what we've built, where you know the more people that are using the product, the faster you'll get your questions answered, easier it is for you to learn. And I think the same applies to some of the kind of more adaptive learning that we're starting to do as well, or just the amount of data that we accrue because of what we have built is pretty tremendous. And that allows us to then create a better learning experience for you. So if you know Wes takes a certain section on Codecademy, we are likely to be able to predict eventually kind of what you will get right and what you'll get wrong and show you the relevant educational material to help make sure you have a better learning experience than you might otherwise have had. Interesting. And I guess, do you ever consider like your free content like a big part of your moat as far as that goes? It's absolutely also definitely a um, a big part of that mode. I think that only works and we're able to keep making more free content because we found a way to monetize a lot of the more advanced content as well. Definitely. And how did you think about the monetization of that content? So you start off with a lot of this free content. You had the code year, you had the 52 weeks. And then somewhere along the lines, you decided, okay, like, let's start this monetization effort. How did you think about, like, this is pro content, whereas this is just the free content that we're going to use to get more people in the door? How did you structure that? I think, you know, kind of perennially a work in progress. In fact, we're, we're in the process of doing some work on this now as well. Originally, the theory was like more advanced curriculum is free and more beginner content is... Sorry, more advanced content is paid and more beginner content is free. Um, under the theory, you should start learning with us. You know, Once you've kind of gotten a reasonable amount of value from learning with Codecademy, then you should be asked to pay for it. And I think in general, we still subscribe to that rule. I think one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on now is thinking about how to further extend that free use case for people. So maybe you're not learning all the time because learning tends to be like a three-month sprint, a six-month sprint off for a while. But what are you doing when you're not learning as one example? Or what is the free experience that we can provide to learners so that they can become generally net promoters while even if they're not paying us? Okay. And I guess on that thought too, like how do you measure success for the end user? I know it's easy to like just look at the revenue numbers and like, okay, they're they keep paying. But I know in a lot of like education oriented businesses, there can be a lot of like phantom MRR where it's just like people are paying, they're not actually using the product. And it's also, there's this interesting talk we had at the 
product-led summit from the VP of product at Amplitude. And I like the way you phrased it. It's like every product has its own game. Like if you're Amplitude and you're a product analytics tool, we don't necessarily want you logging in every single day, 10 times a day. <laughs> it's like, it's about productivity. So like if you're sharing a report with someone, that's great. Whereas if it's Netflix, it's like, it's really just about attention. Like, hey, can we keep you engaged for longer? We're going to be looking at like the minutes you spend in the app every single month. If that goes up, that means we're doing something good. So for Code Academy, like how do you think about like end user success? What does that look like for your users? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to track that. I would say, number one, we look at the percentage of our subscribers that are active on a monthly basis. So that's one that we look at. But I think number two, you know, we start to look at things like course completion, the goals that our learners have when they start. I think to your point in education, you might be an annual subscriber to Code Academy, but you might not be using it 12 months a year. And that's fine. We kind of designed for that use case as well. Like, what can we do in order to give people the opportunity to use the product, even if they're not actively learning, et cetera, but make sure that they're active when they need to be? Like, how do we know we're doing our job? And so a lot of that kind of dives into like learning efficacy and assessments. And, you know, if someone starts a front-end web development path, are they passing the assessment at the end? So things like that, we, we try to do kind of exa- exactly what you've said. It depends on the game that our learners are playing even because some learners are advanced and they're looking to learn a language and that might take two, three weeks, whereas some are looking to wholesale redesign their career. So I think it really depends on those learners' goals. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, because like everyone learns differently. And some people like myself... <laughs> When you're really into something, like you just like just go through all of it like very quickly. <laughs> and I like that, like intensity, but like for some people, it's more of like a drip. Like you want to go through things a bit slower as you kind of progress them. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And I guess on the Code Academy website, one of the things that I love that I've seen you do really, really well, and you mentioned it too, like with the forums, the community, is you're really like instilling that uh, community-driven growth as part of like get people to engage, get people to help out each other. And I think that is part of like a learning product. It's really, really important to have that. And I'm curious, like what specifically did you do to really like foster the community that you're building at Code Academy? Because it's not just like, hey, you just have courses here. There's also more. You can get connected with other people. You can have events and all these other things. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something we're honestly still working a lot on, but it does stem from this like deep held belief that learning is better when it's not alone. And I think that that is something that we perennially invest in. We continue to add to our community team. We have a lot of different channels that you can join our community on, You know, whether it's Discord, Facebook groups, our forums. And so we want to be everywhere our learners are. And we want to provide them with a supportive and exciting atmosphere that kind of convinces them that anything is possible. So for me, I mean, the best... Whenever I log onto Facebook, the best Facebook posts I get are the inspirational ones from our learners. And there are a couple of these a day. You know, hey, I just I started learning on Code Academy 18 months ago and I ended up with a job as a QA engineer today. And like I just wanted to tell you that it's possible. And then you see kind of dozens of comments from people on that, you know, like this is what I needed today. And I think seeing that kind of like self-reinforcing motivation is the thing that I think vindicates community as an investment because that's what gets people to come back and to continue to learn and to eventually kind of live those better lives. 
Interesting. And I guess, is there any other ways you kind of look at it from like, this is really working for us? Like there's obviously like community growth numbers, like number of users who are signing up and number of people who are engaging and like sending messages and kind of like different metrics like that, that might show like there's a good amount of value going on. But is there any ways like you directly look at the community and say, you know what, this community is driving a serious amount of value for our business? We always struggle with this. It's always hard to find the metric we've tied over time. You know, oh, our most active community members are significantly less likely to cancel, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there isn't always clear business logic behind why we should be investing in community. But we do it anyway because we kind of believe deep down that it is the thing that will help lead to more growth. Yeah, I love that too. Is there anything else that like whenever you're thinking of these long-term investments for the business that you just can't quite put the finger on? Like, you know what? Uh, we just believe in this and it's we have a feeling and a hunch that it's going to really help us long-term grow this business and help more people. Is there anything else like besides the community that you feel is kind of in the same boat? Yeah, great question. I mean, I I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I feel like so many other things that we do are reasonably quantifiable. And community is just one of those that's like a passion-driven investment of the business. Actually, you know what? I think we do a lot. uh, We give away a lot of scholarships. So last year, we gave away 100,000 scholarships to K-12 students that were out of school during the pandemic. And then 100,000 scholarships to people that were furloughed or fired during the pandemic as well. And I think those are things like we don't quite know what the impact on our business is. We think it's the right thing to do. And we think that's you know something that will generally get more people using the product and more people promoting the product. And so, uh, but I think that's also kind of driven out of this deep belief that at the end of the day, we're a business that does well by doing good. And I guess like as far as other areas of Code Academy, like what are you bullish on as part of Code Academy's future growth? Yeah, a lot, you know. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I think um, we are, as I mentioned, kind of really reinvesting in a lot of curriculum creation and also just content to help our learners discover the right path in programming for them, the right path in technical skills. I think that's something we spent a lot of time and attention on the first several years of the business. And now we're spending a lot more time and attention on now is how to provide a lot of value prepay well to our learners. And I think obviously, especially when it comes to product-led, like a lot of product-led growth is driven by doing that. And so I think that's a renewed emphasis from us on really focusing on kind of adding a lot of value prepay well. So that's one thing. Number two is a lot of internationalization. I think we have just a dramatic... We've seen a dramatic increase in usage in a lot of countries around the world, India in particular, where we've been providing subpar experiences, right? So we did things recently like we moved to an India-specific payment processor and we've seen dramatic increase in payment acceptance rates in India, which makes it a lot more feasible for us to invest deeply in the country. And we're seeing that everywhere. So I think kind of internationalization is another big thing for us. And lastly, I think Code Academy for Business is a really big investment area for us. I think we have started that business from nothing. We'll do a decent amount of revenue this year and a reasonable percentage of the company's revenue. And I think what we've seen is all that growth comes from the consumer side. So he uses Code Academy as a consumer and then goes into his workplace and says to his boss, like, will you subsidize this? And the boss says, yes. And then says, actually, we should have this for all of our employees too. So we're seeing a lot of that kind of bottoms up B2B growth that I think is really driving a shift in our business as well. That to me is very exciting. I think the closer we can get to connecting directly to employers, the better. 
Yeah. And I know on our end too, we do have like education products on product-led content. And that's exactly what happens a lot of times too. Like they start off, it's just an individual signs up. And then the next time it's like, okay, we want to bring our entire team or something like that. And it's just a much easier way to get people on board because they already know what to expect uh, because you have a great end user experience. So that's fantastic. And so what do you think like the future of education looks like? I know this bigger, broader question, but in your opinion, since you spent a ton of time in this space, what do you think it looks like? I know there's, we've both kind of made fun of universities and like how some of the content's just more theory-based than practical, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what that looks like for the future of education. Yeah, I mean, I think about one very particular sector in education, you know, which is, I think, adult education for us, which is, you know, I hope we move more towards a world where people focus on ROI. And I think that's happened over the past 12 months, right? You've seen a lot of universities forced to shift online. They provide a subpar experience online. They're still charging $60,000 a year. And people are saying, like, what am I paying for? That Zoom account's you know, 50 bucks a month. <laughs> seriously. And yet... Uh, And so I think what we're discovering is that online education, like we focus on, which is learning by doing interactive with a global community, can and should be the norm. And maybe spending $60,000 a year on a college education should not be. And so I think if there's one big thing that I think is going to be the future of education, I really think it's people thinking about return on investment. Like with Code Academy, if you spend $240 on an annual subscription, I'm pretty sure you're going to get your money's worth. It's very unclear, you know, the further up that cost curve you go. And so I think as we start to see this unbundling, education today, a college education, as an example, is many things, right? It's an on-campus experience, it's classrooms, it's research, it's a sports team. At the end of the day, I think different companies are going to carve out different pieces of that. Like we just want to teach you the skills that are important for you to live a better life. And I hope that's the highest return on investment part of the experience. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with like $349 investments. And a lot of these coding jobs you could get as a result of that, like it's six figures plus easily for a lot of them. So easy kind of pill to swallow as far as that goes. And I agree with you, like the unbundling of education, I think that's definitely where it's headed. And then how do you think more of these education providers could be more ROI focused as far as like proving out the value you're going to get because it is sometimes a bit harder to be like, was it because you took that course that like we now have this much extra revenue in the business or was it something else that maybe we hired Sally and Sally had a good idea. (laughs) So it's really hard. There are people that do that have tried to get close to this. You know, I think Pluralsight has a product called Flow that basically tracks like your engineers get commits and determines whether or not what you're learning on Pluralsight affects the engineering productivity. Honestly, I think that loop is very difficult. I think they're doing as, as good of a job as they can. I think it ultimately sometimes is subjective, right? Like if Zach is being assessed in a performance review once a quarter and Zach uses Scout Academy and his score goes from a three out of five to a four out of five, like maybe the education has something to do with it. I think it's almost like it's hard to not think investing in employee education is a good idea. And I think that's why, you know, this will be the golden era, in my opinion, of a lot of kind of employer-paid education programs, whether they're, it's through us, companies like Guild Education, you know, companies like Udemy, where the employer ends up paying because it is just a no-brainer to help retain your employees by making them better. Yeah, absolutely. And, okay, so the last question I have for you is, if you were to do the whole experience again with Code Academy, with everything you know now, which would be awesome, by the way, what would you do differently? (laughs) 
what would I do differently? I'll maybe give you two things on this one. One operationally and one from a business strategy perspective. I think we touched on one of them, which is I just wouldn't be free for as long. I think in retrospect, like again, there were diminishing returns to us providing a completely free experience. I think providing a free experience is great. But I think for us, we didn't focus on monetization until like year four or year five. And I think in retrospect, that was the problem. So that's one thing. And number two, I think I'd hire more experienced people earlier in the company's history. I think there was a lot of like, oh, we will, we need smart, scrappy people. And ultimately what that resulted in was just this like reticence to hire people that had a ton of experience in the space. And actually in retrospect, like that's what makes life a lot easier. Yes, you can hire fewer of them because they tend to be more expensive, but that experience helps you make fewer mistakes helps you hire fewer people in the future as well. So I think we made the mistake a lot of young founders make there, which is, you know, assuming everyone has to work incredibly hard, assuming hiring people that are really ambitious with no experience is always the right answer. uh, And it's not. So I I think kind of getting to that point of like hiring significantly more experienced people much earlier in the company's growth. Definitely. That's solid advice. I've made that same mistake myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree. Cool. Well, Zach, where can people find out more about you, what you're up to? I know there's codeacademy.com for all the the fun things you're working on there, but any other places people can connect with you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, ZSIMS on Twitter, ZSIMS. And that's probably the best place to keep in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Zach. Yeah, thank you for having me. 